0: Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarization of our communities, and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is Zita Holborn, a multi-award-winning, multidisciplinary artist, author, poet, curator and vocalist. She's an experienced trade union and community activist, and her artwork responds to social and climate justice, human rights and equality. Zita was elected to the TUC National Race Relations Committee and the Women's Committee, and she's Joint National Chair of the Union for Artists. As a human rights campaigner and educator, she believes in practical solidarity, and for years she's raised funds for humanitarian aid missions. She's the National Chair of Black Activists Rising Against Cuts, which she co-founded in 2010, initially in response to government austerity. She's also founded the Roots Culture Identity Art Collective, curating exhibitions to showcase the art of young Black and migrant artists. Through arts activism, she campaigns against all forms of discrimination, including the discriminatory cuts in the UK arts and culture sectors. Already in 2023, achievements include being one of the winning submissions for the Jessica Kingsley Writers' Prize entitled Roots and Rebellion, Personal Stories of Resisting Racism and Reclaiming Identity. She's been nominated for Arts, Culture and Community Influencer in the Caribbean Global Awards 2023, and her artwork was commissioned for the Voices of Windrush Festival, celebrating the 75th anniversary of the Windrush generation arriving into Britain. In August this year, look out for Betty, Zita's painted giraffe sculpture, one amongst 30 as part of Croydon Stands Tall, a 10-week art event celebrating creative culture. Trust me, there's a lot more I could still include here, but needless to say, Zeta is utterly and entirely dedicated to justice, equality, and the power of art. Hello, Zeta, and welcome.
1: Hello, and thank you for
0: that lovely introduction and a shout out for Betty as well included. (laughs) Amazing! Oh, she's
1: a she hero, isn't she, Betty? Yes, yeah. Named after a real Betty the giraffe in Kenya. Oh, yes.
0: Beautiful. (laughs) Well, writing your introduction was a bit like studying for an A level. You have such an impressive uh, career. Oh well. I wondered, um, Zita, if growing up at home. Was there a sense of activism or political awareness that became embedded in everything you do? It's such a distinct part of who you are.
1: So the art was there growing up and so was the politics. Whether I immediately put the two together, that's a different matter. I think that evolved over time. Um, But I grew up in an artistic household. Um, My dad was a designer and artist. Uh, a textile and handicraft and fashion designer. And he also was a lecturer in arts and design. Um, My parents were part of the boycott campaign against apartheid. So I grew up, you know, knowing about that, boycotting South African goods, and were also um, members of the Labour Party and, you know, quite vocal when it came to politics. So yeah, all of that um, impacted and influenced influenced
0: me yeah absolutely so was your dad largely responsible perhaps for sort of exposing you to arts and design and maybe influencing your own interests in graphic design
1: yeah my dad played a big part in that because um but actually my mum as well she may not have been a formal artist but she was very creative um, and had real creative flair and actually had um, her own business at one point where she sold the creations of other designers um, on market stores, for example. So um, we were kind of surrounded by a friends network of my parents who were artists. So art and artists were all around me um, growing up. And the politics, I would say, came more strongly from my mum.
0: OK, so what was what was mum's point of view on, on politics?
1: I think because she was a migrant to the UK from the Caribbean, she was a black woman. She had lived first-hand experience of racism and had to navigate racism and gender discrimination every day. So she was very, very strong about standing up for her rights, speaking out against injustice and calling out you know, discrimination when she witnessed it Um, and, you know, if she was on the receiving end. Um, And so that really rubbed off on me. And in addition, she had a whole set of law books and would periodically, you know, at least a couple of times a week, quote, chapter and verse and ask me to (laughs) memorise elements of the law that might come in useful in my daily life.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I mean, that couldn't have been more appropriate as things turned out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, what about um, your dad? What what was his heritage?
1: So, his heritage is um, Welsh and English, and he, on his um, maternal to, maternal line, his his um, grandfather was um, a miner in Wales. Um, and um, his uh, his um, grandfather plus great uncles, um, when they came to um, England, to London, worked on the docks and um, were founding members of the trade union movement for dockers.
0: Oh, amazing. I mean, this is literally in your DNA then, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, it seems like it.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's really significant history.
1: Yeah. And I think the other thing that influenced me in terms of a global outlook and in terms of human rights um, across the world was that for a period my dad worked for um, United Nations Development Projects. And so he was living in a number of different um, African continent and Asian continent countries um, where he was doing development work. And I would spend summers with him and experience firsthand some of the things that were going on. And that included, for example, when he lived in Lesotho during the apartheid regime and being surrounded by South Africa and experiencing apartheid firsthand, um, having to cross the border. Um, It included having to go under curfew in Sri Lanka due to civil unrest. Um, So my summer holidays weren't like other children's summer holidays, (laughs) basically. (laughs) So that all had an impact on me culturally, artistically, creatively, as well as politically.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, that is really, really quite unique, isn't it? I mean, in that level of exposure and particularly when we're also talking about such grisly um, histories like apartheid, I imagine that must have given you almost such a strange perception on the world, if you like, in comparison to other school kids. You know, when you were at school, having that level of exposure to such deep global issues, and also coming from a mixed heritage family, did you feel like you were kind of juggling different worlds and different realities that other kids around you just wouldn't have been exposed to?
1: It did feel like that. Um, Yeah, definitely. I felt quite different. Um, Actually, I didn't see lots and lots of children of mixed heritage. They were, you know, a scattering in my secondary school. But there weren't loads and loads. Um, And so my identity was like firmly embedded in Caribbean culture and Caribbean community and, um, you know, friends. Um, But I always had this sense, yes, of being different. And I think it's quite different now um, because if you look around, you'll see lots of mixed heritage people all around me. You know, every time I step out the door, um, any venue I go to. But it wasn't like that like growing up. So it did feel very different.
0: And would you say it might have even created a sense of vulnerability at times? Lots of guests in this series are from uh, migrant families or mixed heritage backgrounds. And there's always. A sense of duality you know of having two different identities was that the same for you was there a sense of isolation at times from that point of view
1: yeah there were there, there definitely was that that sense and that feeling um at, at times but like I said because I um had you know a strong identity in terms of Caribbean heritage and culture, um, that actually gave me strength and a sense of belonging at the same time.
0: Yeah, and I imagine um, from how you described uh, your parents and and especially your mum, a really strong sense of resilience.
1: Definitely had no choice but to be resilient. But I also think opening my eyes um, and having first hand experience of lots of different cultures and religions um, around the world, I think it's very different when you go to a country and see firsthand and you're not there as a tourist as such. You know, you're there um, living, living life with your family there. It's quite different to just go in as a visitor in a hotel and going to tourist sites. So I think that that um, that awareness of other religions and cultures actually helped me to identify more strongly with those groups those communities back in the uk if if I encountered them and met people from those communities um, you know I could recognize and appreciate those cultures and religions and had respect for them and that actually helps you bond more with
0: more people breaks down barriers yeah absolutely and in terms of breaking down barriers you know through um that that positive you know cultural exposure and, and integration would you say that's really what followed through with your interest in arts or when you decided to go off to art college for example is that the space that continued to open up that world
1: Definitely, my first art school was, um, part, was now part of the University of Arts, the London College of Printing, in the Elephant and Castle. Completely international, multicultural on every level, that that art school was. Whereas the art school I went to outside of London was predominantly white, with a handful of black students in it, um, and not not very many other um, communities represented at all. Um, so they were two quite different experiences, but the London one was full of working-class students, plus students from all over the UK of every ethnicity and religion, and lots and lots of international students too.
0: Yeah, so I imagine that would have been a much more natural and and happier home for, for you. Definitely. Yeah, so would they... College also have been, um, you know, exposing students to global and international artists Or, or do you think even then that may have come more from your dad? I mean, would you have been conscious of artists like Althea McNeish, for example, you know, one of the first designers to gain international recognition from an African Caribbean background uh, here in the UK would, would, would artists like that have been made visible to you through college or do you think that would have been more from home
1: I think that was through my own research and my own interest of pers- you know finding out more and being curious um, but we didn't have mobile phones and the internet so the process was slow actually both school and university at that time or art school were woefully bad in actually exposing us to the fact that they were all these inspirational artists you know a few years older than us or so you know that we could look up to and be inspired by in fact um, I um, did a solo art exhibition at the Goldsmiths women's library a few years ago and part of that solo exhibition was to research the archives and black women artists and when I went through the archives, and that was to you know inspire the exhibition and the art that I put on, um, I found that literally on my doorstep, places I passed every day as a child, as even you know as a O level and A level student at school doing art and textile and design, there were all these exhibitions and movements and things going on which we were never ever told about and didn't even know, and it was quite devastating actually. To know that not just for me, but I know you know lots of my friends who were black and brown and um, you know wanting to pursue careers in art. How uplifting and incredible and amazing that would have been, and strengthening if we had had exposure and known about these things. And I think I guess communications were different then, so you know you couldn't just click a button and find out about them. But it's it seems disappointed now, looking back on it, but our art teachers were not considering these factors and collating this information and telling us about it. Yes, we went to the national galleries and um, museums and exhibitions, but they were kind of mainstream ones, really.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And And there are just so many blatant issues with that as well in terms of who we see in our establishment spaces. So, and you mentioned the word curiosity, of course, and it's even more surprising, isn't it, that, you know, at college or, you know, the lecturers, for example, weren't actively inspiring curiosity because would you say curiosity is is fundamental to artistic expression and not just artistic expression, but to understanding the world and, of course, human rights and humanity.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say that they weren't um, encouraging us to express curiosity or opening that door and nurturing curiosity, but it wasn't directed in, okay, there is a Black British history in the arts, Um, here are the archives, here is where you can access information they weren't the invitations of these people into the, the um, art school, you know, to do talks or presentations or information about their exhibitions. So if you didn't go out and find out about things, and sometimes you find out of things by accident, but actually it was the time where you actually had to pick up leaflets, you know, from community centres and libraries and that sort of thing. You know, I myself, as a performance poet and artist, would go around leafleting community spots or events. And so, in some ways, it's almost left to chance whether you find out about something or not in, in that time. Yeah, and
0: also, um, it seems maybe you had a good understanding of you know your own your own self care, your own progression, your your how you could assert yourself, and of course that that no doubt um, relates again to what you were saying about your your travels with your dad, you know, and that wider exposure um, in, into, into other countries, other cultures. So do you think that unless perhaps you were as self-motivated as you were or perhaps had the confidence that you had, um, you may have actually found that the course was too narrow.
1: Yeah, I think that that that's right. Um, and lots of um, my influences in what I created, the art I created came from um, injustices in the world, experiences that I'd had, things that I'd witnessed you know, in other countries, Um, the cultures and heritage I have been introduced to of my own and other people's. Um, So I think my influences came from the other experiences I'd had in life rather than within the art school
0: environment yeah. and would you say this is what's um sort of translated in a way into roots culture identity the the art exhibition um that that you've curated and i and i think you've you've actually curated it for 10 years is this is this in fact the last year you're curating it
1: Yes, so um, I think I've done 10 years. Um, If somebody else wants to take it on and continue it, it's actually hosted by the TUC Race Relations Committee, which I was elected to till very recently for about 18 years. Um, And so I've done 10 years. I got it off the ground, got it started. And actually the exhibition was established to meet one of the recommendations of the TUC Stephen Lawrence task group. Um Which was to use the Marble Hall in the TuC headquarters, Congress House, as a space to platform the talents of creative young black people in memory of Stephen and because Stephen Lawrence had wanted to be an architect, um, so in recognition of his, um, you know, creative uh, aspirations. And so that's why it was established. Um, I acted on behalf of the TUC Race Relations Committee to get it off the ground to coordinate it every year and to curate it. Um, and you know we've seen a, a few artists that have stayed throughout the 10 years, and we've seen lots of different artists come for a year um, or two years, and it's been great to not only be able to give them a platform for their their art, but also to expose them to the idea of trade unions because they may may not have been on their radar at all, or it might often they weren't trusting of trade unions or didn't know much about it, um, and so uh, it plays an important role, you know, because of the fact that young black people face that multiple discrimination through the over decade over a decade of austerity that we've seen. Um, in the labour market, they already faced discrimination in the labour market because of race. And then austerity had an adverse disproportionate impact because of race and age. Um, and then in the sector itself, there's barriers and discrimination and low pay and um, you know, not very good terms and conditions a lot of the time because most people are working precariously um, on a self-employed basis. Um, so workers' rights becomes really important for those that group of workers who are very often not even recognised as workers. And there's this idea that we could live off Finet and just create art out of the love of it, you know, out there. Um, we don't get the same respect as other workers. But what I have sought to do over the years is to not just have the one exhibition at um, the TUC to coincide with the Black Workers Conference, the annual Black Workers Conference, but to find other opportunities for that exhibition to run during the year. And so we've had lots of different organisations. That's
0: that's really positive. And actually, For the listeners, uh, because there are lots of um, international uh, listeners, and and actually, hello America, because I know at least 50% of the downloads are in the United States, so hello America. And um, so for the listeners, um, can we just contextualise, of course, uh, it was established in memory of Stephen Lawrence because of the outrageous and horrific tragedy of Stephen dying at the hands of basically racist murderers. And I believe he was only 18 at the time.
1: Yeah. And what followed was the exposure of the institutional racism by the police in their handling of it and his family effectively having to fight for justice up to this very day Um, And there is a Stephen Lawrence Centre that has been established, so listeners in the USA could find that online. And as for the actual exhibition, we have an online version of it. Um, So if you searched TUC Roots Culture Identity Art Exhibition, it would come up and you could visit the whole exhibition online as well.
0: Yeah, and can I quote, actually, from... um... Stephen Lawrence's mother, Baroness Lawrence, um, because it's such a powerful statement about hope in the face of such terrible circumstances. And I'll quote her, justice for Stephen is about all of us, every one of us in society having justice. There are still too many young people who do not have a sense of hope, who just don't get the chance to live their dreams. I want all our children and young people to feel inspired, be confident and have hope in their own future. We are building hope, but there is more to do. What's your take, Zita, on hope?
1: Um, Yeah, those words resonate for me. Um, You know, I can strongly relate to them. I think hope is a really important thing. I feel like... If I didn't have hope throughout my life, I wouldn't do ninety percent of the things that I do. I have to hold on to hope um, because otherwise there would be no point. Um, And I strive to leave a legacy um, that's more positive than the one that was passed to me in terms of injustice and discrimination. Um, You know, we've actually gone through a really tough time in that respect um, with. Uh, over a decade of austerity, the pandemic and now a cost-of-living crisis. Um, But I think we have to hold on to hope. Um, We have to try and have some upliftment in our life, um, uplifting experiences. um, Because if we don't, we could just curl up and die quite easily. Now, because life is life is really hard um, if we don't have any optimism, then what is it that we're going to hold on to in terms of um, striving for better and striving for a more positive future?
0: Yeah, and this certainly seems to be where and why the arts are so critically important and thinking about this current exhibition and, and again, um, for the listeners, Roots, Culture, Identity it is available online and I will signpost the link on Zita's episode page. Thinking about that exhibition currently um, and some of the artists um, looking at their work, um, for example, Frederico Ramos, absolutely leapt out I mean his his work is outstanding so it's the hyper real drawings where you're convinced you're looking at black and white photography but what I really loved amazing talent oh it's it's literally outstanding and what I really loved was his courage to be open about his own loneliness and depression and the need to be able to express himself through the arts, you know, and and how and why he became um, increasingly involved in his own artistic work. I wondered, you know, in terms of the artists you've curated, um, what do you think are the overriding feelings, if you like, that come out of, of the young artists um, in this exhibition. Do you think it is around vulnerability, hope, courage, transformation, positive change? What What is it do you think they're asking for in terms of roots, culture, identity?
1: Well, I wouldn't like to speak on their behalf. But I do think that, you know, as, a, as an artist myself, at different times when you're creating art, it could be all of those things or any, any of them. But I also think um, the, act, the, the act of creating art can be a joy in itself. So sometimes you're not creating art thinking of an audience, or actually a lot of the time you might not be thinking of an audience. What you're, what you're doing is just reacting to your gut, your soul, your spirit, your heart, And that pours out onto whatever medium you're using through whatever medium you're using um, and whatever platform you're using to create the art. Um, So the Roots Culture Identity um, title is an overarching title for the whole exhibition program throughout time. But each year we have a theme and this, year's theme was Windrush 75 because obviously we're you know approaching that anniversary it's the anniversary year um and so the artists contributed art which responded to that theme and I always set the theme quite broadly and say it's up to artists how they interpret that theme um and you know what their experience of it is and in terms of Windrush um you know what I invited artists to um, submit for the exhibition could be about celebrating the Windrush generation, celebrating our contribution to Britain, but it could also be about um, the lived experiences we've gone through in terms of racism and the Windrush scandal. So artists were free to interpret that in any way they wanted. Some artists. have created new work specifically for this exhibition other artists would have submitted art that they had already created that spoke to the theme so that's basically how it works um, every year but i think um, in terms of um i could speak for myself rather than the artists individually um that when i create art it, it may be on like quite a horrific topic because a lot of my art is quite political and I use it as a tool to campaign and to respond um, to issues that are impacting. Um, However, the act of creating it is healing in itself because it's a way of um, directing emotions and how I'm feeling into something positive.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And especially when, you know, as you as you were saying, um, we're talking about such deep rooted uh, trauma and injustices as well, that that role for healing is absolutely critical, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And I think when, you know, artists of any genre create art because they have a passion and a talent and an urge to create art. And if in doing so, audiences respond and connect with that, then that's an added bonus. Yeah. Because if you have art in your gut and in your soul, you're going to create it irrespective of, you know, um, how it's going to be responded to or whether or not you're going to get a platform for it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So can we talk about the Windrush Commission? Um, Because... Obviously, you, you have a prominent role in campaigning against the Windrush scandal that, you know, are more than injustices. We're talking a serious breach of, of human rights, Absolutely. you know, that somehow the government seems to continue to sidestep. But in terms of your Windrush commission for the festival, uh, Voices of Windrush, Um, Would you like to just talk about, you know, your approach to the image you you created, you know, what it meant to you and what you wanted it to say?
1: Yes. Um, So I was commissioned by um, Voices of Windrush to create an artwork which responded to the Windrush 75 theme for their Festival of Windrush which actually is taking place this month and next month. And there are a whole host of events, give it a plug, because there are lots and lots of amazing events that they've organized throughout the two, two month period. Um, but they, they wanted something that commemorated and represented um, the Windrush 75 um, anniversary um, and that could be used for publicity, but also merchandise. And that um, uh, acknowledged the Windrush 75 wording. So that was the sort of brief I was given. And what what I chose to create was um, the Empire Windrush uh, ship because it's symbolic. Um, people recognise that image. It, obviously, it's the thing that's associated with the Windrush 75 anniversary. But I also wanted to be uh, to have people. Centered in that. Um, So the ship is, um, you know, on the sea, blue sky and clouds um, in the background, but at the foreground and central to the image. um, In the background, actually, on the ship are people, um, uh, but not detailed. But at the foreground, there is a family of a mother, a father, and a daughter. uh, in 1950s, COVID arriving um, uh, off, off the ship. That's what it's supposed to symbolise. But beside them are two young people who are from this period and time. Because I wanted to also represent that the Windrush generation arrived, but we've had generations since their arrival um, born, raised, in the UK, lived their lives in the UK and contributed to British society, British economy and all aspects of British life, as have the Windrush generation themselves. So I wanted to give that sense and recognition of the 75 years, you know, started with the people that came, but has continued into the future generations, effectively the grandchildren of the Windrush generation
0: yeah and i'll just interject here too just um again for listeners who may uh, international listeners who may not be familiar with uh what we mean by the windrush generation so this was a direct invitation from britain to citizens in the caribbean to help rebuild britain post world war Two. in fact The 1971 Immigration Act gave Commonwealth citizens citizens living in the UK indefinite leave to remain. And what actually happened?
1: So the scandal that (laughs) ensued after (laughs) that is the human rights abuse that you've been talking about. I would like to say, though, that um, the Windrush generation is not just about people from the Caribbean. Mm. It's people from um, the... African and Asian regions, as well as the Caribbean region, um, Mm -hmm. who were from Commonwealth or former Commonwealth countries who were invited. So, you know, often people think of the Caribbean and Caribbean representation, um, but actually the Windrush scandal um, and the Windrush generation is about more than that, that Caribbean geographic area. Um, So, People were invited, as you've said, to the UK to come and help the country recover post-World War II. They faced horrific racism on arrival, color bars, couldn't get housing, couldn't get jobs, um, and nevertheless, and and faced fascist attacks as well. Nevertheless, settled in the country, contributed to the economy, worked very hard, raised their children, raised their families, two generations, maybe more for some people, depending on ages. And then came the Windrush scandal. Well, it wasn't known as the Windrush scandal, you know, um, until um, the height of it. But prior to that, in 2012, Barrack with other organisations, formed the Movement Against Xenophobia, which was a campaigning group, coalition, responding to new... um, a new immigration bill that the government wanted to introduce, which whilst it was um, going to target newer migrants and overseas students, for example, we were warning that it was going to impact on that Windrush generation as well. And then fast forward a few years, um, when I really started campaigning on this issue, even though we'd had that sort of warning and challenging the the legislation um, a few years before we became aware of um, um, a charter flight, a, a mass deportation of people, a whole plane load of people to Jamaica. Um, and that started to expose what was happening in terms of um, people who were from the Windrush generation being told that they're illegal immigrants and being deported, but also people who had traveled back to the Caribbean for a visit found themselves stranded and not allowed to come back to Britain because they were told they could leave on the passport they had, but their papers weren't relevant to come back. Um, And the government had torn up the landing cards of these people and told them that they had to prove year on year that they had been living in Britain. So that meant schooling, housing, um, work. Most people don't have papers going back 20, 30, 40 years to prove every year of their life. Um, They continued to detain people and to deport people. There was a big campaign. Um, Slowly, people started to talk about their own story and come out in the media, um, those who were directly impacted. And um, organisations like my own, Barrack UK, Um, campaigns on this issue, together with our sister organisation, which we co-founded, African and Caribbean and Asian Lawyers for Justice. Lots of individual Windrush groups um, developed around the country to respond um, to what was happening. And there was a massive campaign uh, challenging what the government was doing. But people think the Windrush scandal has gone away. It hasn't. Whilst the government may have apologised, they haven't done all the things that they said they were going to do Um, they haven't put right the wrongs there is no amnesty for the um, the descendants of the Windrush generation who are still impacted by these things and the vast majority of people haven't received the money they should have under the Windrush compensation scheme and a lot of people have died unfortunately and that's why Windrush 75 is important marking this anniversary because people are of a certain age so you know to commemorate their um uh years in the uk their contribution to british society to celebrate them and to highlight actually the ongoing scandal we can't afford to wait to an 80th anniversary for example
0: no absolutely um and uh the fact that There were deaths, people have been treated like criminals, families have been divided. Um, I understand, in fact, that there's more than 5,000 cases uh, of individuals who have in some way been seriously harmed, you know, including through destitution. Um, And yet, as you said, um, the recommendations from the inquiry haven't been met. The current Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, Uh, in fact, dropped three of the commitments, including a series of reconciliation events. All of this, of course, speaks to what was known and is understood as a hostile environment and hostile legislation that was designed to be racist and was pretending not to be.
1: Exactly. It's blatantly racist. And they tried to suggest that... They just, the Windrush generation just got caught up in all of this by accident. But we know that the immigration policies of the government are deeply racist um, towards black and brown people in particular. Um, If we look at the small boats policy, the Rwanda policy, that's all targeting the most vulnerable people, people fleeing persecution, um, conflict, climate change who don't have safe passage as refugees to the UK, who go on those perilous journeys on small boats, not through choice, but because they feel they have no choice, and then are penalised further by being detained because of the way that they arrived, um, and um, are to be dumped in a a country on another continent after they've already gone through long, perilous journeys to get to the UK.
0: Mm, Yeah. Uh, It is absolutely staggering uh, what hostile environment, uh, you know, really means. And we were talking previously about hope and about the courageous words of Baroness Lawrence, uh, the mother of Stephen Lawrence, um, looking to, to hope. Would you say... The celebrations, the exhibitions for uh, the festival Voices of Windrush, for for Windrush 75, may engender hope that these travesties travesties really must never happen again, but we seem to continually live them. I mean, with the current government, we seem to live an expansion of a hostile environment?
1: Yeah, so I think the the commemorations are important in terms of celebration. Um, that it is right that we look back at what we've achieved, what we've contributed to, um, and um, we celebrate that and we acknowledge, because that's crucial to do that. Um, but the commemorations will also take stock of where we are now and acknowledge the continuing scandal too. And I think that's important because um, the general public may just think it's all gone away. The government apologizes a compensation scheme, that's the end of it. But in reality, it isn't the end of it. Um, we can't underestimate the psychological impacts, not just on those who were directly impacted, um, you know, the Windrush Generation members, but their entire families being been torn apart um, going through the trauma. And, you know, I've worked with families for years and, you know, seen and heard firsthand about how this has impacted on children, their schooling, um, their ability to concentrate, the trauma that they've gone through. So it isn't just impacting on one generation. It impacts on a wider um, community. Um, and so we mustn't forget, and actually part of the the, the Windrush 75 commemorations is ensuring that we don't forget, remembering what's happened, acknowledging what's still continuing and what we need to do, and the importance of standing together and standing up against the injustice and speaking out and taking action, um, as well as the celebrations, and I, I'm I'm doing a talk and an art exhibition that's part of the Festival of Windrush, a little pop-up art exhibition with another artist, and um, we will be talking about the role of art in um, campaigning on these issues.
0: Oh, that's really interesting, and the way you combine politics with 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 the arts, it, it is so powerful anyway, because art has such an important role, doesn't it, in terms of authentic memory, um, you know, that it's a way of being able to speak your own voice. And actually, poetry is another uh, big part of what you do. Um, uh, Obviously, you're a writer and author, but you're also a spoken word artist. And one of your poems uh, is called Redefining History, and uh, in, and your commenting on, on windrush and, and a line um, that I noted that for me just you know absolutely sums it up was, despite the fact that we were deceived, we came and we achieved.:
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you, know, I wrote that poem long before the windrush scandal broke out. You know it was about the lived um, experiences prior to that scandal, um, but it does sum up the experience that we already had to go through in terms of injustice and discrimination and what we had to navigate. Our parents' generation, you know, my parents' generation, for example, had to navigate um, even before we got hit by the Windrush scandal, and that was that was too much already, let alone having this on top of it.
0: Yeah, 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 It it, it is... It is outrageous uh, in that um, it never seems to end. Talking of uh hostile environments, um unfortunately, <laughs> uh it seems, of course, to uh have a role in the world of the arts itself. And and I'm interested in your role as joint national chair of the Union for Artists, because um, the arts suffer from endless cuts, and not just in terms of uh, funding, but also curriculum cuts. You know, school—it's the, the arts are just not available at schools, and universities have been obliged to to drop uh, art subjects. Some in some cases during austerity, entire art schools. I personally find that really. Quite sinister um, that um, it's part of a of a, of a government's uh hostility really towards the arts. How how do you see the union uh responding um at the moment? Is it is it more than the fact that so many of us that work in the arts still suffer from really precarious working conditions, which seems to be we live on thin air? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's central to our campaigning, to campaign um, for um, the rights of artists as workers, of course, to have fair, equal pay, a living wage, um, proper terms and conditions. But through the pandemic, we saw artists have their work cancelled with immediate effect um, for their work projects and streams that they were involved in to close down because of the pandemic. Um, and effectively be left destitute um, with no income. And actually, initially, the government measures didn't cover a lot of people um, like our members who may be partially self-employed but also have to do another part-time job, usually in precarious work too, because of the fact that they can't earn enough as... um, you know, a socially engaged, community-based type artist. Um, So our outlook is, of course, about promoting arts and culture and ensuring that it's free and accessible to all. And one of the things I did in in another arts trade union role is I co-chair the Public Services International um, Uh, education support and cultural workers network and that's an international um, uh, trade union federation Um, but I wrote on behalf of PSI a manifesto for cultural workers um, which was focused on recovery and equality Um, and we think that um, and we've also been doing work around this with other creative sector unions in AUE and we think that art should be for all. It shouldn't just be for the wealthy or elite. So access to arts, whether it's working in arts or enjoying arts, should be accessible to everybody. Um, Art um, plays a crucial role in everybody's lives in terms of uplifting us, in terms of self-care, wellbeing, um, health, education, but of course art is also embedded into everything we do. You wouldn't have adverts if it wasn't you know, for, for creative people and artists, you wouldn't have concerts, you wouldn't have film, you wouldn't have theatre, you wouldn't have exhibitions and museums and galleries without all of these um, uh, artists involved. And so we feel that we should be recognized and acknowledged in an equal way to other workers, which is not our lived experience. Um, so there's lots of work for us to do. We're, we're still quite a small and young union. And one thing we want to do is encourage artists to join our union, because it's an art, It's a union for visual artists, but there are, of course, unions for other types of creative workers. Um, but we think um, our strength is in the, the numbers within our union and what we do collectively as a union membership.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. And of course, alongside everything you you described in terms of you know, how the arts serve us, the arts are also um, a space for empowerment uh, and and revolution and being able to speak to truth. And and in some ways, that's why I find it sinister, if you like, that we have a government that's so hostile towards the arts Uh, and also just on a a daily level of just exercising your creative thinking, your creative imagination, simply your curiosity, that, that we must avoid a narrowing down because doesn't that narrowing down of perspective translate into increasingly polarized communities?
1: Absolutely. And just on that point, recently I was delivering some workshops with a a playwright um, to drama students um, on how we can use creativity and drama and theater to uh, bring about change and challenge, um, you know, issues in the world. And in the workshops, the groups of students who were school children, secondary school children, um, came up with many performances which touched on the cost of living crisis, sexual harassment, racism in schools, bullying and harassment and a whole array of topics, which actually meant that they felt able to communicate about those issues in a way they wouldn't have if it hadn't been translated through art, and that's another reason why art is crucial, because creativity aids and helps people to express themselves in ways they might not be able to.
0: And also, you know, we we were talking earlier at the beginning of of the um, interview, you know, about um, having a dual identity, for example, you know, uh, through mixed heritage. And you in many ways have have a dual voice. You know, you have a political voice and you have a poetical voice or an artistic voice, for example. Um, And so you can really see, can't you, how being able to speak is served differently, whether it's through the arts or whether it's through um a political arena not everybody accesses the same spaces
1: no and i can reach audiences through creativity that i may never connect with in the way i do as a campaigner and activist because often you're preaching to the converted unfortunately Mm, yeah through, through that through that route
0: yeah and another concern is um currently the government is judging the success of arts degrees or those that are are still hanging on there uh by salaries earned on graduation and to me that just is entrapment all over again it's another Mm. hostile environment because all of the conditions have been removed to disallow that kind of success not only that I disagree with the fact that it should only be marked in terms of level of salaries earned, but that aside, would you say that that's another example of creating a hostile environment?
1: Yeah, it is. It is 100%. Because what about um, those creatives who graduate and face barriers and discrimination and can't get a foot in the door? What about the ones that are um, more political and create art um, in similar ways to I do, who then won't get those platforms or those opportunities? I can remember as a you know a younger artist, both as a poet and a visual artist, like submitting my my work for some events or exhibitions and being told, "Well, your work is very strong, isn't it? I don't think it's suitable for us." And the door's shut in your face because you, you, you've you got hard-hitting messages and they don't like them. They just want sweet, nice poems about birds and roses and, you know, lovely pictures of flowers <laughs> in paintings. That, that's, that's what we were facing. You know, that's what I experienced. And then I had to, like, well, I was always my authentic self because I couldn't create art in a fake way if that makes sense to reach you know somebody else's expectations of me or to try and imagine what i felt other people wanted to see because to me then that's not authentic it's not coming from my gut it's not real and my emotions are not in it so i'd rather create the art and nobody ever sees it but no i feel something positive out of creating it um then um be, be in a space with hostile negative people that are looking down their noses at me like my art is not the right standard for them. Um so you know I had to go through my navigate my own struggles. I didn't, you know, become a professional artist stepping out of art school. I had to navigate life and do lots of other jobs.
0: Yeah. And is that what your poem? progression is all about is that an autobiographical account of the struggles that you had
1: it is but it it was more widely not not specific to the arts but about um gender and race discrimination in in the workplace it was responding to yeah
0: we we obviously and with the nature of your work we've been talking about you know heavy um injustices But moving, again, back to to hope um, and the idea of hope going forward, can we talk about your work in a world reimagined and the globe you created that was um, displayed at Trafalgar Square?
1: Yes, yeah. Um, That that was an amazing arts and education programme, which is still continuing, actually. Um, it's my art, my, my globe is scheduled to, to be exhibited um, uh, somewhere else soon. Um, not sure, I was about to say that I thought, I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to say publicly yet where it's going, so I thought I would better not. Um, but some of the globes are actually at the National Maritime Museum. There were, uh, there were over a hundred globes created for um, several art trails in different cities across the UK and in a number of boroughs in London, um, which sought to reimagine how we think of the transatlantic um, slave trade or the enslavement of African people, the trading in the enslavement of African people, um, and its legacies. And so there were Nine themes for globes um, in each art trail, if that makes sense. But attached to that was an education programme. There's resources on the website. There was an education programme with children and mini globes created by children in local areas. Um, And it's a really, really powerful exhibition. Um, and then, yes, ultimately, all of our globes came to Trafalgar Square, which was even more powerful to see them all together in that space. Um, and it was just an honour to be involved in uh, and participate and create this this massive uh, globe, um, which... The theme for my globe was really everything I do, (laughs) essentially, um, as a a multidisciplinary artist, but also as a campaigner. So I I highlighted some of the campaigns that I'm involved in. Um, I used a lot of words as well as images on the globe, Um, and um, how that what that was inspired by that globe is on. An eight-foot piece of Hessian as an act of self-care during the pandemic, I documented, and I talk about document documenting struggle as an artist, whether it's as a writer or as um, a poet or as a visual artist. And effectively what I was doing on that piece of Hessian was, um, you know, for an hour here or there in the evenings documenting what was going on, whatever it was I was campaigning on, or issues that were impacting on us, whether it was the pandemic, climate change, the Windrush scandal, it was all happening um, during that period. And um, when the, the, the commission came up for the Globe, I submitted that piece of Hessian because I knew it could wrap around the Globe because it was a very long thing um you know it's seven foot or eight foot but however long it was. Um and um was fortunate to be um selected as one of the contributing artists. And I I I you in during the pandemic I also did digital art which I would put on my Instagram every night, which I called Daily Doodles, just documenting what was happening because I felt it was important one to capture what was happening. But It was harsh during the pandemic. So as a union rep, as a community activist, we've got deportations going on, the impacts of the pandemic, the impacts on workers. My day was heavy every single day. So at the end of the day, just documenting what happened was an act of self-care and a release from everything and just getting it out of my system.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and it, again, it, it just shows again, just, you know, that's just one of the critical uh, values that, that the arts can offer us. And that crucial role of, of expression, of being able to express yourself in some way. And, 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 and it's so not about, you know, in terms of how good you are at some kind of artistic practice. It's, it's the experience of it, isn't it? In terms of self-care is one example. So A World Reimagined just sounds really, really uplifting, which, of course, is a a happier note um, as we have to start thinking about closing the podcast. So perhaps I could ask uh, what your response is to the series question, Can Art Save Us?
1: Absolutely. I don't even think it's a matter of can art save us. I believe art saves us every single day. I believe art has saved my life several times over, because when um, I've hit rock bottom, when things are really tough and really hard, one creating art and documenting uh, what what I'm going through and expressing what I'm going through um, helps me to get through it, helps me survive, um, brings me healing, The act of being able to share that with others who also may respond and connect with it um, actually brings us closer together. Um, We rely on our everyday, don't we? To release, as a release and a relaxation, we go to plays, we go to exhibitions, we watch films on TV, we watch programmes on TV. We buy pieces of art and prints to... um, adorn our homes and make us feel happier and more comfortable in those homes. Um, you know, we're art is everywhere and it's in everything. We go to concerts, we sing, you know, whether or not we're professional artists, lots of people don't actually classify themselves as, as an artist. But when you speak, what you do as a hobby, you find out actually they are involved in the arts. They're in a book club, they knit, whatever it is they are actually doing something to do with arts, which gives them um, a release from the world. So I think that actually, yes, we can use art in a more political way to campaign and raise awareness of issues and bring people together and unite people and um, stand up for for rights um, collectively, but actually, uh, and that may be a way of saving us as well, a form of saving us, But actually, I can't imagine a world where we didn't have art. I can't imagine going for a day without art um, helping me through that day, whether it's reading a chapter in my book or whether it's doing a little doodle when I'm in a meeting. It all helps me get through the day. It helps me navigate things. It helps me to document things. And I would encourage anybody listening to... Find a piece of art that works for you, a or you know, in the arts that works for you. Um, and that could just be journaling. It could just be doodling. It could be flower, arranging flowers in your garden. You know, it could just be painting and decorating in the house. But that's all creativity. And people very often don't think about lots of those things as being creative. And it, all of it helps. All of it saves us.
0: Yeah, I can. Com- I completely agree. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed having the opportunity to talk to you and to-, to listen to all of your thoughts. I really do appreciate you making this time because you are unbelievably busy. And thank you for the justice that you're trying to bring back into the world and into the arts and culture sectors.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's been fantastic to um, speak with you today.
0: Oh, bless you. Thank you.